Hello, and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. I am your host, Jensen Beeler. Joined with me today is the lovely David Emmett. Well, hardly lovely, Jensen, but uh, thank you all the same. I'm trying to build you up a little bit. <laughs> and the equally as lovely, but deeper voiced, Neil Morrison. It's quite possibly the nicest thing you've ever said about me, JV, so I'll take that. Thank you. Throughout this whole week, that certainly is. Uh, gentlemen, we just finished up uh, race weekend here in Austin, Texas for the Grand Prix of the Americas. Yep, always yeah. a good time in the United States, I find, when you come here for the MotoGP. It's a, a cracking event, definitely one that I would recommend anyone uh, to visit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're going to, if you um, want to combine a race with a holiday in the US, then this is absolutely the, uh, the race to come to. Yeah, it's in my backyard, so I obviously am a big fan of it, but always love Austin as a venue for hosting anything, good food, lots of things to do, a jumping off point for, you know, like you said, an American vacation. Enough with the travel guide, though. Let's talk about some motorbike racing because we had a little of that going on. And uh, I think our first topic that we decided on was a Mr. Mark Marquez. Yes, I think there's nowhere really else that we can start um, after everything that had happened in Argentina. Mark arrived in Austin with this, amid a swirl of controversy. Um, he wasn't exactly the, uh, the the paddock favorite among his uh, fellow riders after what you know that performance in uh, Argentina. Um, but he really responded in the the only way he knows how. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it really, everything was about Mark Marquez, really, because uh, first of all, we had the live stream debrief with Mark and Valentino um, uh, saying, saying, yes, saying, saying nothing, saying we don't want to talk about what happened in Argentina. Uh, then on Friday, we had the riders, uh, the safety uh, safety commission, where the riders all got in uh, to, uh, well, they started off all shouting at each other and then Carmelo Espelaita grabbed them by the hand and said, we're not going to talk about what happened in the past. We're going to talk about what happened in the future. Um, uh, that was basically in response to what Mark did in um, in Argentina, uh, they've made the uh, punishments a little bit more strict for the future. Uh, basically, I spoke to Mike Webb briefly, and he said in the future any uh, infringements will be punished one step more harshly than they were in the past. So, if in the past you got a warning, um, I mean the perfect perfect example was Mark Marquez and Paul Espargaro on the uh, uh, on the grid. They were riding slowly on the line. Normally, that's just a warning unless you're a habitual offender. Um, this time they got a three-place grid penalty. Um, uh, and so, for example, if the penalties had been in uh, place in Argentina, then Mark wouldn't have got a 30-second penalty when he knocked Valentino off. He would have got black flagged. So, uh, yeah, they're basically going to step that up. Then we saw Saturday, it was all about Mark um, uh, qualifying, riding on the line, first of all, crashing almost saving it again but uh, but uh, crashing uh, again during qualifying jumping off his bike getting uh, getting off getting well trying to prevent being getting a toe from uh, Iannone uh, taking pole by a massive amount um, uh, being punished by three points on the grid and then Sunday was race day so yeah it was it was all about Mark Marcus yeah I thought it was interesting before the event even kicked off coming from Argentina and how much drama was going on there and you know how much of that just didn't percolate over into this weekend. Everyone, no one wanted to talk about it. We saw it in the pre-event press conference. No one really wanted to talk about it. We saw it with Valentino and Marquez's, like you said, live stream debriefs. Nothing was talked about there. Um, it was it was interesting to see how quickly things got put under the rug, so to speak. Yeah, I think part of that was to try and quell 
this mad hysteria that accompanied the race in Argentina. And we saw a lot of um, tribalism that reminded us of uh, what happened in 2015 after the, the Sepang race with both Marquez and, and uh, Valentino Rossi. Um, it all got a little bit tiresome, I feel, even as early as uh, Sunday evening in Argentina, you know, the way people were rushing to take sides and, um, you know, pointing the, pointing the finger of blame at one another. Um, but we got here. I feel people were not so much interested in, in that whole Marquez-Rossi thing. Uh, some riders were still willing to talk about race direction and what they felt would have been a, an appropriate means of uh, course of action. Uh, in Argentina, uh, Alicia Spargo was quite outspoken saying that, uh, you know, if, if Marquez's performance in Argentina didn't merit a black flag, what the hell does? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of people took those thoughts into the, the Safety Commission on Friday evening and uh, vented, vented those frustrations. Uh, you know, we heard Lorenzo speak about it on Thursday. I think Tavitios mentioned a little bit about it as well. Espargo was another one that was quite outspoken on the matter. Um, so those are, those are guys that I think went there um, keen to sort of uh, understand uh, where race direction are at and how this is going to be dealt with in the future. Um, but I think you're right in terms of the whole, you know, Rossi and Marquez thing. Uh, people were just a bit tired of that once yeah, we got here. I, yeah, I mean, I have to say that I, because I was, you know, looking on Twitter, looking on uh, uh, forums, that sort of thing, that reaction, and there was, I mean, obviously everyone was still talking about it, but there wasn't the same level of vitriol that there was after Sepang 2015 and after Valencia 2015. So I actually think that the uh, people are just getting a bit tired of the whole situation. They're just getting a little bit tired of the um, um, uh, of the rivalry, or well, not, not rivalry, perhaps the um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The vendetta, the, the, the vendetta between the two. They are um, it, it, it's becoming a bit tedious and so when things get stoked up everyone gets excited for sort of 10 minutes and then um it's becoming sort of fairly routine and so no one is people are taking less and less notice of it that was certainly my impression and again in the riders no one everyone except for mark marcus and valentino rossi they just don't care there weren't riders taking sides it was just like just shut up we don't need this Mm-hmm. I mean, John Zarco in the um, in the press conference. Exactly, Jack Miller in the press conference yeah. was, was fantastic on Thursday afternoon, um, just saying that we're out here risking our lives. There's a lot more to this sport than taking sides between one and the other. Um, he spoke quite quite cogently on the matter. I feel. Yeah, incredibly maturely for you know jackass for um, uh, a young man who has uh, made his who has built a reputation for being uh, a, a little bit mental. Um, uh, but he was extremely mature. You know, he was he was basically being the grown up to the room to two to two riders who are his senior in terms of uh, of experience and his, and very much his senior in, in terms of age. So it was um, quite remarkable. What do you guys think will be the effects from Marquez kind of being at the the center of this hurricane that's around him in terms of penalties and stories and and race direction and all that. Do you think that's going to affect his riding going forward? Did, did you see any effects 
that you perceive this weekend? Yes. Yes, I think we saw on Sunday what the yeah, effects were. Yeah, yeah. He I think cleared that, off into the distance yeah, and yeah. without so, a second thought. Yeah, seven. What was it seven, seven and a half seconds after nineteen laps? Nearly the biggest um, uh, victory since Le Mans two thousand sixteen. Biggest dry win since Le Mans uh, two thousand sixteen. And he made very pointed remarks after the race that what has happened in the last two weeks has or affected his strategy. Uh, yesterday, he said normally what he does is doesn't try to go too crazy at the start of the race. He sits behind riders like he did indeed uh, in the Circuit of the Americas or at the Circuit of Americas last year. I think he sat behind Danny Pedrosa for the first half of the race before checking out the end, winning by three, three and a half seconds. He said he woke up on Sunday morning after everything that had happened, considered the best course of action is to get right to the front and clear off, make sure there's as little controversy surrounding me as possible by the end, and also to make you realise this is what I can do. Um, is this is this what you want? Yeah, I was I was thinking what he wanted was one of those yellow snake flags with no steppy on it, but um, uh, it was... Very, very, very much. Um, it was, uh, it was, it was one massive fu, really, wasn't it? It was just totally. Look, I mean, he's much stronger here. He can't, couldn't. There are lots of other tracks where he couldn't beat so strong, where he couldn't beat, um, uh, where he couldn't beat other riders quite so easily. But here, there is just no stopping him. And once again, we saw the just the way he won was um, just incredible. There are no, there are very few words which can. Uh, which do justice to the, to the way because he was often a second faster than others six tenths of a second four tenths of a second yeah I remember in the second half of the race it was actually quite remarkable to see him just doing the same lap times as Vinales who was in second place you thought oh wow he's really you know he's really backed off and that means that he's the the second fastest rider on track yeah which goes to show just how you know just how much in hand he had um, but another thing that you said JB about what uh, one of the, the consequences of his actions will be. I think there probably will be a bit of time where race direction are adjusting to this new kind of harsher uh, means of, of penalising riders. Um, I think we're quite probably quite likely to see some fairly harsh penalties coming up um, as they try and find sort of a happy medium between what they were doing in the past and now trying to find a more stricter approach. It's one of these pendulum swing things. The, the danger is that it all gets a little bit F1, and at some point in two or three, year, two or three years' time, someone um, just nudges someone slightly offline and receives a six-race ban for it, and then the fans go... What? Hang on. Wait a minute. What are we doing here again? So I think um, uh, the the pendulum is you know swinging one way at the moment, but I sort of wonder where the pendulum is going to sort of end up. I think it's I think it's starting to swing a little bit too far uh, one way, um, and it will it, it it needs to come back a little bit, but it's not you know. It's not too far out. I mean, I would have been, personally after Argentina. I think we should. I think Mark should have had a black flag, but um, uh, mainly just because of the multitude of penalties uh, of, of transgressions which he had committed. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I don't know three place grid penalty. I don't really think you could argue with that. I mean, he made a fairly decent case for defending himself on Saturday afternoon, but I do feel that um, Mark doing something like that especially with a guy like Vinales behind a guy that he's tried to rile up in several occasions we saw mm. in Argentina yeah. we saw it in Germany last year during qualifying just riding into the side of him I feel that uh, he can do things like that 
and try and do the what what did i do i also think that it was um uh it's philip island 2015 all over again where mark marcus is getting the blame for uh, andrea iannoni's actions where um it was andrea iannoni who was taking points off of valentino rossi and yet everyone blames mark marcus for it and here again i mean mark marcus was riding slowly because he uh, because he didn't want to get uh, he didn't want to give a toe to andrea iannoni because Precisely because Ianoni had been really quick during um, uh, during practice, so um, that's not to excuse him. He still he still has his own responsibilities to go faster. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, it wasn't entirely well. It wasn't entirely. It wasn't a hundred percent Mark's fault. It's about ninety five percent, and it was just extremely fortuitous that it happened to Maverick Vinales behind him. Yeah, I don't think it was a coincidence that he was uh, touring on the racing line with Vinales on his uh, possibly fastest lap of the afternoon. Um, considering what we have seen in uh, recent I, weeks, uh, you see, I don't think he did it on purpose. I just think it was um, um, uh, when he found out that it was Vinales, um, he was quite pleased. Rather than oh, there's Vinales behind me, I'll get on the racing line. It was like um, go on, Ian, only go on, go on, get away from me. Oh, I've blocked someone. Who is it? Oh, oh, Vinales. Well, that's convenient. <laughs> quite possibly, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think we shouldn't be too surprised if in the coming races there's some kind of controversial action where we see contact between two riders We're, we might see a penalty where we think was that too severe yeah i mean if you apply the same rules uh, uh, in moto gp and moto 3 then everyone's going to be starting at the back of the grid and they will you know they'll be uh, at jerez they'll have half of the half of the grid starting on the back straight so it's going to be uh, it, it's it's always i mean refereeing is always difficult whatever uh, whatever you do as a referee it's always wrong in somebody's eyes and so you just have to try and um, make the fairest uh, sort of assessment that you can um, you know I'm just glad I'm not Mike Webb yeah yeah go along with that possibly the most yeah. difficult job in the paddock and uh yeah the stuff that he had to endure through the the two weeks between Argentina and here quite difficult a couple of publications calling for him to be sacked and be removed and oh yeah but that's almost automatic i mean you can almost i mean there are a few publications who have that article ready to go sort of you know automatically all they have to do is like click publish as soon as uh, um, as soon as anything controversial happens so it's uh, it's uh, it's incredibly lazy really just blaming them uh, blaming the referee without trying to figure out what the uh, what the best course of action is yeah, I think if we look go back through Argentina, there are maybe, I think if you look at the race, uh, everyone's going to have a different view, but I think Mike Webb could put up quite a good argument for pretty much everything he did. Yeah, maybe, except, maybe except bar, Aaron Connect. Yeah, maybe by the, the Moto3 action on uh, Friday morning yeah. where we saw Aaron Connect ride into Marco Yurchenko yeah. and take both of them down. And that was, uh, you know, he was ex- incredibly lucky to walk away from that without any further punishment. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't see how, how that couldn't warrant a punishment at all. But yeah. otherwise, you know, having uh, been in contact with Mike Webb and heard his reasons for the penalties he gave, I think you could make a point for each one of them, to be honest. Yes, exactly. It was more just the accumulation of them at Argentina rather, rather than anything else. The thing I always keep coming to, and this is this is my background more as a lawyer, is, is when you look at what, like basic jurisprudence is and what the law is supposed to function as. So you have legal precedent from cases, at least in the US, we have legal precedent from cases that we try, but, and we also have codified laws, which is even more important in the European systems. And I think when I look at Mike Webb's job and rice direction and how they put together their, 
um, penalties and how, which which events they choose to penalize and which events they don't, and then what that penalty is. It's it always seems very arbitrary for me, just from a legal lens, not necessarily so much from a fan lens. And listening to the writers talk, I do hear a little bit of that frustration of, okay, if someone like a Mark Marquez is sitting on the line or bashes into someone, what is that penalty going to be? You know, Alicia Sparger, why, why do we have a black flag if we're never going to use it? That kind of that complaint of, okay, well, we have these rules, or at least we think we have these rules, or we have these ideas, we're not always following through. So if I had like a, a critique to give race direction, it would be to say, okay, let's come up with a more standard operating procedure to assess this. So not only do the riders and the teams know very clearly what, what the penalties are going to be for their actions, but also be able to say very clearly, okay, this is when yeah, you've you, crossed the line and this is when you haven't, and this is what's going to give you a third degree penalty versus a second degree penalty. Yeah, but this is, I mean, th th this is the problem because there was some discussion in the safety commission about, um, uh, about black flags. There, right. there was some suggestion that if you touch another rider, it's a, it's a black flag. Um, now, uh, I mean, I don't know if anyone remembers Philip Island, uh, Philip Island last year, but that was quite a good race. And uh, everyone ended up with basically with black marks all over their leathers where they've been touching each other. So um, uh, I actually went round uh, all of the ride or as many as riders as possible during their debriefs saying, OK, can you define a uh, can you define a dangerous move? And the, the only sort of consensus that emerged was... Um, there are five riders who are always dangerous and there are five riders who are never dangerous, which does not seem like a good basis for a legal system. No, no. And 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 just to, to bring it back to the legal system, it's it's like the definition of good pornography. Yeah. You know, like, oh, I, I know when I see it. Well, that's just a discussion for a different day. <laughs> that's a different <laughs> podcast. <day. laughs> it's an entirely different podcast. Yes. But th there is this fine line of how much, how much rowdiness do you want on the track, for lack of a better word? Because it is entertaining. Oh, I'll yeah. be the first to admit I enjoy a good scrappy race yeah. because this is this is a soap opera for men basically at the end of the day. Yeah. We all loved Phillip Island last year. We all spoke about how it was one of the greatest races we had seen in yeah. recent memory. Yeah. Um, and, 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 but I think to go back to what Alicia Spargo said on Thursday, uh, you made quite a good point that there is a very big difference between uh, contact during a close scrap when most of the guys on track or running the same pace, you make a tough overtake a move and you make slight contact. He said there's a difference between that and hitting a rider. And yeah. Hitting a rider is basically when you're a lot faster than someone else and you ride in to them, make contact with them when you're going, say, like 10 kilometers or 20 kilometers an hour faster, as Marquez did in Argentina when he hit uh, both Espargaro and, and Valentino Rossi. I think that's a quite a decent point. You know, there's an important distinction to make there between the, the rough and tumble of the fight and... Well, just being um, a bit wayward, you know, and uh, not really having too much consideration for the line or the, the consequence of the rider in front of you. Yeah, I mean, Ben Speed's made a point on Twitter um, uh, about Mark saying that uh, he'd noticed that Marquez seems to break he seems to carry a lot more speed into uh, into corners on the braking and so he is um he's off the when he's going up the inside he's often carrying a lot more speed uh, than 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 another rider might do um whether that is but then that's that's his style anyway he's he's you know he's always been an insane sort of breaker to the apex to get the thing turned and then out again um, and it's always difficult to actually judge whether he's also doing that when he's on his own on the track because you've got no sort of comparison yeah, 
It is. A, it's a real tight line because we, I mean, all of us like to see clo- good, close, tough racing, um, and we don't want to see the sport overly regulated and seeing a, a you know spate of stupid penalties like we saw in, or like we regularly see in F1, um, where aggression um, is sometimes equated with being too out of control when you know reality it's not um you look at max verstappen in f1 and accumulation of penalties he's uh, picked up has been ridiculous and there's maybe a case to be made that he's just a bit green a bit inexperienced and uh, too enthusiastic i don't want to see that in motorbike racing yeah but yeah Yeah, but i mean matt oxley had a really good column what last week or the week before uh, about one of the reasons there's so much contact now, uh, contact now is because the field is so much closer. When you have uh, a race where, you know, what, 10, 15 uh, bikes are finishing within 10 sec- seconds of each other, they're all so close together that uh, just the statistical likelihood of a, um, of contact is much higher anyway because you know everyone is everyone is just so much closer together and because the racing is more exciting because it's more interesting just because the, you know it's so much closer you you're inevitably going to end up with riders making contact yeah and i think at the end of the day we can probably all agree that what we really don't want to see is race direction starting to decide races or decide qualifying with the rules that they have to make or with the penalties that they have to give yeah yeah i mean that's the one thing that mike webbs sort of says um uh, about sort of judging penalties uh in the end you have to let them race the the races need to be decided on the track between the uh, between the riders and it's what you can't have is have the race run and uh, then uh, wait for three days to find out who what the actual result is because everyone is in there uh, and they've all submitted their penalties and it's gone to the panel of stewards yeah. and then it's gone to uh, I can't remember what comes after the panel of stewards and then there's another FIM appeal and then it goes up to the, uh, uh, the to, 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 yeah exactly yeah. and then it ends up in the cast and then six months later we find out um, you know who finished seventh in um, in Genef. that's not at all what we want I mean I come from from racing sailboats and there's literally been America's Cups that have been decided in the courtroom. Yeah. And that's not, I mean, and it was the detriment of the sport. Yeah. So that's what we don't want. Uh, I want to shift gears in a second, but I have one last question for you both real quick. So we saw uh, a race weekend at a track that Mark Marquez arguably should just have the deed to, but we're going to go to some racetracks in the future where the Honda and, and Mark aren't as strong. So what do you think happens when he's at a track where he's weaker and he finds himself you know, scrapping for points and, and the red mist comes down again. Do you think all of these things that we've discussed this weekend, all the, the baggage from Argentina sits in the back of his head and he goes, mm, maybe I shouldn't make that pass this time? Or does it go out the window and he still barges his way through? I don't think so. I think if you look at Marquez in recent years, Argentina was an exception rather than the rule. If you look at him in 2011, 2012, when he was in Moto2, sure, we saw this stuff all the time. Not quite week in, week out, but more times than not, we saw him being aggressive, extremely aggressive. Um, I think in the past three years, um, really since uh, 2015, where he had six DNFs and finished third in the championship, since then we've seen a, a, a lot more mature figure who considers his actions, accepts second places, third places, thinks about the championship in the long run. I don't think we're going to see a return to his old ways, really, when we have such an accomplished guy who's already won four MotoGP World Championships. And yeah, you're right, there's a few difficult tracks coming up, such as Jerez, Le Mans. Um, 
Yeah, and I, I really, I can't see, I can't, I think we're just going to see Marquez racking up podiums and yeah, we're probably still going to see an aggressive rider. We're still going to see an aggressive rider, but well, I, I don't think we're going to see a guy that uh, is, is skittling guys. The, the, yeah, this was Moto2, Mark. In Argentina, we saw Moto2, Mark, and not MotoGP, Mark. Uh, I mean, Marquez is, al- is always going to be willing to take that little bit more risk than most other riders. Um, he'll always be a little bit more aggressive, but not uh, mental, not, not completely... Uh, I mean, he was just, he was being unnecessarily dangerous and, and reckless at Argentina. And uh, the, mainly because he was completely panicked. He was panicked about all sorts of things. And also he just knew he was so much faster. But I don't think they, there are other, uh, there are other places where this, this was, this would happen. And the only time at which Mark has that kind of advantage is in mixed conditions. When, Grip is sketchy because he's absolutely fantastic in uh, in low grip uh, low grip conditions. That was why he was so quick. That was why he did so well. Yeah, when was the last time we saw Mark so out of control like Argentina? I mean, we're going back quite some time. Right? Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean Barcelona two thousand twelve. Um, that sort of uh, uh, that sort of time, or perhaps um, uh, Valencia Valencia two thousand twelve is his last well, two race or his rookie year. In yeah, the GPA, yeah. The first half of, of, of his rookie year, of his rookie year, he was. Um, but that was, I think, um, someone told me that um, uh, Emilio Alfamora said in his first uh, in Mark's first year. The first half of the year, um, uh, the bike was riding Mark, and in the second half of the year, Mark started riding, riding the bike. Um, of course, it speaks to your mentality if you're prepared to take that kind of risk, uh, not knowing what the outcome is going to be. But, uh, you know, he was 20 and um, young, dumb and full of... Um, uh, okay, I want to I wanna switch topics and, and discuss uh, two tales of one motorbike, so to speak. Uh, what, what's going on in the Yamaha camp? Because this was a quite a good weekend for the movie star Yamaha team. Vinales on the podium and Rossi in fourth. And uh, I know Valentino during his his post-race debrief was saying maybe if they changed the weight distribution on the bike a little bit, it could have performed a little bit better and he could have been there. You know, that's a kind of a change in fortunes from from uh, a team that we would have said was quite lost going into the season. Yeah, I mean, the, the in recent years, this has been a decent track for the Yamahas. Uh, what the well, because they've been on the podium for I think like the past two or three races. There's been at least one Yamaha on the um, uh, on the podium, uh, and like you said, we could have seen we could easily have seen two Yamahas on the podium as well here if um, Rossi hadn't got. Uh, basically, they they set the bike up for cooler temperatures. The, the the track temperature was much higher, and so he got a little bit too much wear on the uh, uh, on the on the front. Um, meant he just couldn't stay with uh, with Ianoni. But he wasn't that far off Ianoni by by the end of it. So um, yeah, I mean they've made big steps forward. The new chassis is much better. Uh, Rossi is much more is much happier with the uh, with, with the 2017 2018 yes the 2018 chassis which is what we were discussing this earlier and it, it it's sort of a, it's sort of either a 2016 chassis or basically it's a 2013 chassis or <laughs> 2009 chassis which is slightly tweaked. It's a total wormhole. They're talking yeah. about chassis in Yamaha's. I think last year they had upwards six chassis throughout the year. Um, yeah, but the, it's worth pointing out again. It, so it's six different chassis, but, but it's basic. I mean, it's it's almost it's six 
chassis which are almost identical except there'll be a slightly uh, the, the 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 stiffness somewhere will be slightly different it will be you know there'll be sort of a a, a hundredth of a millimeter of uh, of, alum, of thickness of wall thickness in aluminium in one point will be will be different and that's so uh, it's really difficult to speak about it i think that's that's very true um from the first test at Sepang, Rossi said that the 2008 chassis, sorry, 2018 chassis was a lot more to his liking. He struggled to find comfort entering the corners all the way through last year. And he said that from the very start of the season until the end. Um, this year at Sepang, he said that he can enter the corners a lot more as he pleases. What has been interesting recently is to see Vinales looking a lot more, um, a lot happier and sounding a lot happier as well. Um, they made a change with that bike uh, just before qualifying in Qatar. He said it, it made the, the bike a little stiffer, and we know that Vinales is a lot more aggressive on the brakes and with the throttle than Rossi. Um, so he was allowed to, to brake as hard and as aggressively into the corner as he wanted to um, with this new setting. And um, yeah, really what we've seen from, from Vinales in particular has been a quiet accumulation of decent results, not really setting the world alight. Uh, we haven't been talking about him a lot, but from a guy that was completely mired in the the doo-doo yeah. uh, through pre-season um, to have finished uh, in the top six in each race and now to place in second okay he was quite a bit back of mark but um, it was telling that each time we spoke to Vinales through the weekend he was happy and he was lauding the work that the team have done the progress that they've made with the bike saying that yes we've still got quite some margin to improve but we're right back in the in the area that we need to be to be competitive and he's able to ride the bike as he was around this time last year when he was kind of washing all you know before him um yeah and i think that's uh that's that's pretty good finales is in a good place and i think he's just five five points back of andrea dovizioso in the championship if you said that to him in thailand in february at the test there that he would uh, be going back to europe with uh, a five point disadvantage in the championship i think he would have bit your hand off yeah i mean he was walking around in, in thailand basically with no with no belt and no laces just in case um uh, things uh, thing, things were that bad but uh, yeah i mean uh, it, it was it was interesting because uh, as you say valentina was uh, was asked i think on saturday about you know why he's happy with the bike he says, you know, the chassis is better. He's much more comfortable with the uh, with, with the chassis, and now they just have the electronics to fix. I know they're throwing a lot of resources at uh, the uh, uh, electronics. They have to. The, the what Japanese companies sometimes struggle to do. They want they 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 suffer from not invented here syndrome. Um, so they don't like getting any outside help in. And what you saw with well, I mean, Ducati and Magnetti Morelli. Uh, literally, I think about a kilometre or two and a half, so basically about a mile away from each other. It's it's on the same road. I mean, you actually walk past if you're on the bus from Borgo Panigale to the uh, to, to the city centre, you drive past the Magnetti Morelli fa uh, factory. Um, so there's and there's always been a historically a very close relationship between the two. Um, uh, Yamaha. It's, oh, it's no coincidence that Ducati's electronics are widely considered to be the most sorted on the grid. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And there's. Um, uh, people off the record will um, make all sorts of uh, uh, level all sorts of accusations, none of which are provable. <laughs> um, but uh, also, we saw Honda. Honda hired, I think, one or two electronics engineers from Morelli uh, to help. And them one sort from Ducati, apparently. Yeah, yeah, exactly. To uh, to help uh, to help sort these electronics. And now Yamaha are moving in the same direction. They're looking at they're looking at expanding their. Um, uh, they're sort of electronics engineers. There haven't been uh, any people hired, as far as I know. I was talking to one person 
um, and uh, they were saying um, we haven't. Uh, they were saying that they hadn't seen any new faces yet, um, but uh, they were expecting to perhaps see new faces at the uh, at the next test, and that's where, that's where we would see uh, the, the the real difference. But yeah, I mean the, the the bike is a lot more sorted. The riders are a lot happier. And again, that's I mean uh, Maverick was talking about the holistic thing. You know, it's all one piece. You know, the, the bike is better, so the rider is better, and so um, uh, it's it's uh, it's a virtuous circle. The one thing that Vinales was pointing out throughout this weekend was, or were the improvements in electronics. He is a lot more aggressive with the throttle than Rossi, and he felt that he was being restricted by the electronics, almost cutting out um, his throttle application on the exit of corners. He felt that he wasn't getting the drive that he needed to. Um, and it, again, it shows you what a balance that they're trying to create, because last year they said that uh, the electronics weren't good enough, they weren't saving the tyre enough. Um, whereas this time, what Vinales has been saying recently is they've almost put too much too many electronics controls there and he can't uh, accelerate as he wishes um he feels that he now has a, an electronic setup that is a lot more in line with uh with his approach with his um use of the throttle and uh, yeah i think that, um, obviously they've got the post-race test at Jerez. um a spanish colleague of ours was uh, had an interview with finales on thursday at coda and in that interview i think finales was basically saying yeah get through Jerez and then our season starts from there we'll have the, the test after then and we'll be able to yeah. test a whole load of things and let's see how we go from Mugello yeah I mean the, the, that's the other thing about about bike setup is it's um, uh, it's not so it's, so last year they were complaining about uh, uh, about tyre wear um, the Yamaha had a lot of tyre wear at the end of the race um, and they couldn't fix that with the electronics but the tyre wear it's not necessarily coming from the electronics it was coming from the bike um, uh, so there's, I mean, a bike setup is really one giant Venn diagram with lots of overlapping bits and pieces and circles. And it's also worth saying it's also partly down to the rider's perception. I was speaking to Ramon Forcada, Finales' crew chief in Argentina, and he was saying one of the, this obviously isn't the full story, but he said one of the problems with, uh, the, the electronics is that Valentino has X amount of years experience using Yamaha's old software which yeah, was a lot proprietary more proprietary software yeah which was a lot more sophisticated than it was incredibly sophisticated it was self-learning and so it would actually uh, it would actually uh, as the laps clocked off it would be measuring tire wear and response all the time and then uh, adjusting it on the fly and so by the end of the race uh, uh, you'd have uh, the bike the throttle response would feel exactly the same or the aim would be to have the throttle response feel exactly the same as it did at the start of the race, uh, despite the fact that the grip was completely different. It was like that year that uh, Colin Edwards and Paul at Le Mans, and they accidentally put wet setup in at the start yeah. of the race, and the bike taught itself that the track yes. wasn't actually wet. Yeah, I think it took like three, four, five laps for, for for it to figure out that it wasn't actually wet. I mean, and, and if you do that now, if you switch on, a, if you switch the wet session, the the wet setting, then you've basically just got no power for the rest of the race. Yeah. Forcada was saying that a few years ago, if a rider was talking you through the lap, he would say, okay, I'm using this amount of lean angle at this corner. I'm in this gear using at, at this speed. Can you just give me a little bit extra here and take this away? Just you could make the most finite um, changes. Obviously, no, you can't do that. And it's more about just mentally accepting that it's going to be a little bit of a rougher ride. And you think of Johan Zarco, he has no experience whatsoever yeah. of uh, the old electronics in MotoGP. He came into the class last year and we haven't heard him once uh, complain about the electronics at all. 
No, ex so it's, exactly. So it is a case of rider perception and, and what they're used to and, and and how they deal with it mentally. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 I had an interesting conversation with uh, some of the people in the uh, uh, in the Tenkata Honda team, um, the Red Bull Honda World Superbike team, and they were saying that um, when Stefan Bradl left and Leon Camier came in, they had completely different expectations of the electronics package. Uh, Bradl wanted the electronics package to get in there early, to, to cut the power early, to give as much throttle as possible and and let the electronics sort it out. Camille wants it completely the other way around. He wants to be able to spin the bike up and only have the electronics actually uh, intervene when to prevent you know a massive high side. He doesn't want to be thrown to the moon. He's prepared to be sort of you know thrown out the saddle. He doesn't mind the bike, uh, the, the the rear spinning up. Um, it's his he believes it's his responsibility to manage the to manage the rear tire. So you, you know two completely different riders can have two completely different approaches and feel uh, to uh, to electronics. But I think that's a very good point, Neil. That um, uh, the older riders, the riders who are used to the, to the proprietary software, struggle a little bit more or take a little bit have different expectations they need to adjust their expectations to the new world yeah exactly but i think um you know yamaha is you know has a vast history of success especially in the last couple of years um maybe it was a little naive to, to kind of write them off so early in the season but it just was such a concern to hear the similar complaints that the riders were having all through 2017 being repeated through the preseason and it does seem that vinales has managed to find some breathing space again it seemed that everything was working against him in that garage that he couldn't accept the tide of development going in Rossi's direction and he was fighting consistently fighting against that trying to find his own way of, of going and it seems that in the last couple of weeks he's finally well got a bike that he wants rather than perhaps what the team think is best or what uh, what Rossi wants and uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how Van, uh, how Valentino responds to that because last year you could say that some of his actions and some of his comments um, around the midpoint of the year were almost pointed at Vinales and yeah I mean perhaps that was because Rossi blamed Vinales for pointing the bike in the wrong direction and they ended up with the with the wrong direction so maybe I mean they they there seems to be they seem to have a bike now which suits both riders they can both be competitive um, I think I mean yeah, certainly I was prepared to write the Yamaha off at the start of the uh, uh, at the end of the, or by the end of the preseason which of course was incredibly stupid but then <laughs> it's not the first time I've done something incredibly stupid no. um, you weren't the only one to be fair <laughs> exactly <laughs> Just to, just to save you from yourself for a second, David, to just play a little devil's advocate. When you look at where we are in the season, the tracks that we've gone to, there are three tracks that are very exceptional in the sense that they're not that similar to other tracks on the schedule. And if there's one thing I heard consistently being said by the riders at the end of Sunday was, you know, now we go to Europe. Now we really know what it's going to be like. We can get rid of these, these tracks that are an anomalous to our usual schedule, our usual way of doing things. And now we go to Europe and we'll see. It's a different, different layouts, different theories on how a racetrack should be built, different tarmac. Yeah, I mean, that's, it, it, that's a very good point, Jensen, because we have these three tracks are very strange. I mean, if you like, Qatar is a proper traditional motorcycle racing track layout there's nothing wrong with the layout it's just that it's in the desert and there's always always covered in dust and it doesn't really get used enough to actually keep the track uh, clean and it changes day to day yeah. depending on the weather conditions depending on the direction mm -hmm. of the wind mm -hmm. yeah all the rest of it uh, Argentina just doesn't get used enough and so the track is always green um, it's never uh, there's never enough rubber on it it's always filthy um, Austin the same it doesn't get used enough and for it's bumpy as hell yeah it's, and uh, also it's extremely bumpy uh, and it's a very peculiar it's a peculiar layout i mean it's a you know it, it, it's got lots of challenges i mean you've ridden it you know what the track is like yeah we were, we were talking about it on the way back from the the racetrack last night you know as as a, as a rider 
it's a very unique track in the sense that it tests everything. And it's got a little bit of everything in there. You've got turns with blind entries. You have hairpin first gear turns. You have a massively long straight. You have a f- f- turn one that has this 133-foot elevation change. And that's also a blind apex. It, I mean, there's a lot of really weird things that Coda brings to the table. It's fantastic in a way because when, when I have to go go onto the racetrack, it's usually to evaluate a motorcycle. So it's fantastic in that regard because it's going to throw everything possibly at you that you can think of. As as a rider, though, it's not the most enjoyable to No, because, to I mean, that's what, what the, the riders seem to, what the, what the riders enjoy is the technical challenge of it. It's a very, very challenging track. Yes. It's a very difficult yes. track. Um, uh, depending on whether, it, but it's not like, um, I mean, Phillip Island isn't challenging technically it's challenging just from a rider standpoint it challenges your bravery yes i was going to use a an anatomical term but bravery <laughs> is uh, is is correct testicle fortitude yeah absolutely yeah. yeah it's about it's about bravery it's about you know it's a real riding it tests your riding ability whereas a kota is a real test of your precision and and and, and, and ability to 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 understand the track I was going to say a great example of that is is um, turn twelve, the end of the the back straight, and we could see how many mistakes riders are making there. Yeah, because in all three classes, in every class, yeah, because it is so hard. You know, in GP, they're a little over two hundred miles an hour. It is so hard to gauge that braking zone, especially sometimes you have a slipstream, sometimes you don't. Sometimes it's two bikes, sometimes it's one bike, and then to hit that corner just right. It's, yeah, and also because it, do, it, I mean, that back straight undulate, it, oh, it, yeah. it has always undulated, but you've got the undulations, you've got uh, ripples in the braking zone, and you've got bumps. And this uh, year we had to, we had all that dust. Yes, yeah, so. yeah, exactly. So it was really, it was really, uh, it was difficult, just, it was just difficult to get it right. Yeah, yeah. I think that's one of those things we take kind of for granted because it, it looks like it should be something that's quite simple and it's really quite difficult. Yeah. So yeah, Austin definitely is very, very unique. So I'm want to be cautious ahead of getting too excited about uh, Vinales's performance and, and Yamaha's kind of resurgence in recent weeks. Um, I think Jerez will be a really, really good test. Obviously, the track there has been resurfaced since last year. Last year was an unmitigated disaster for the movie star Yamaha guys. Um, normally, that's the Yamaha track. They've always gone well there in the past. I think last year was the first time in boah, 10 years, perhaps, that uh, Yamaha wasn't on the podium. Um, I think it's going to be really interesting to see just how well those guys go um, at Hareth. And if they're on the podium or fighting for the podium there, then I think we can safely say that both Rossi and maybe, well, Vinales for sure, possibly yeah. Rossi, could, could be could be playing a factor in exactly. this championship. I mean, uh, uh, Hareth, they, they, there should be a Yamaha on the, um, uh, well, there should be a factory Yamaha because uh, this right, Joanne Zarco could easily be there. Um, there should be a um, uh, there should be a Yamaha on the uh, on the podium in uh, in Hareth. There should be, I mean, the Yamaha have dominated Le Mans in recent years. There should be a Yamaha should either be winning or very close to winning in um, in uh, in Le Mans. Which, in fact, but I mean, it, it suits all of them. It, it suits all of the bikes. But yeah, there should be one. Both factory Yamahas should be at the front in the front group there. Uh, Barcelona, um, uh, the same. So I think after the the, the, the next four races, Assen as well. Yeah, Assen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. The next five tracks, we will know absolutely where uh, where uh, whether the Yamaha is any good. If if the Yamaha, um, if they haven't won one two races in the next uh, uh, of the next five, then uh, they then we'll know if they're in real trouble. That'll be the real litmus test. Yes. Yeah. 
let's let's switch to the the final man on the podium, uh, Mr. Andrea Iannone. Uh, a lot of discussion right now in the paddock about where his futures might be, and um, I thought it was pretty interesting to see the result from him this this weekend. I don't think I had really placed either the Suzuki or, or Andrea in in the podium hunt, and man, was I wrong. Yeah, well, Ian only does have former on the Circuit of Americas, and I think he was on the podium in 2016, just after, a week after that crazy uh, near-suicidal move uh, he pulled on his teammate in the last corner in yeah, Argentina. The, the move that got him sacked, basically. Yeah, basically lost him his job. Um, and we all know that Ducati can be quite a difficult thing to, to ride and team, especially through the first sector, that uh, serpentine stretch of tarmac, which goes from turn two all the way to turn 11, I think. Ducati certainly isn't the best uh, bike through there, yet Ian only managed to score a podium back a couple of years ago. So he does have form here. Um, but yeah, I agree with you, Jensen. He was good. He was there all weekend. I think he was uh, the fastest guy in FP2 on Friday. Um, he was the only guy out of the markets to lead the race on Sunday. And was just strong, was just consistently there, um, riding maturely, riding really well. Um, and interestingly, this performance comes two weeks after his teammate um, really comprehensively outperformed him in Argentina. And, uh, you know, Alex Rins is on the podium there. Andrea was somewhere towards the back end of the top 10. Um, yeah, this definitely has to be a response to that, as well as the, the continued speculations around in the second Suzuki seat for next year, because we can assume that yeah, Rins is going to stay on for sure um, in Suzuki in 2019 and 20. But Ian only obviously his uh, future is less certain. Um, and he's basically given Suzuki something to think about. Um, I still think it will be a long shot to see him there next year, but this has definitely given him at least something to, to, to ponder um, as they go back to Europe. Uh, I think this was a perfect example of Andrea Iannone. This, Andrea Iannone has um, talent coming out of his whatever, uh, but um, he doesn't always manage to express that talent. Um, he needs a motivation. He needs to, uh, you know, he, he really needs his backside to be kicked, to uh, to be pointed in the right direction. Uh, I think I think this is very much a response to um, uh, to Alex Rins's podium last year, or last week rather, or two weeks ago in in Argentina. Um, uh, he had to he had to step up. It, it annoyed him more than anything. It irritated him, and that was enough for him to step up and really. And he had a fantastic weekend, and he rode absolutely superbly um, this is what we know he's capable of doing and the problem the problem is um, he doesn't turn up every weekend with this same attitude um, that's why I think he's uh, that's why I think he is at risk there's uh, uh, there is gossip that um, he is also difficult in the um, inside the team uh, he doesn't work uh, his work ethic he doesn't fit in very well with the team although he looks he seems also again to have made more of an effort that, actually this whole season really yeah, yeah. than um, uh, than in uh, the, the, certainly than last year but that's again partly because he's just happy with the bike the bike is really much much better than it was last year in part because of the uh, because the engine they've got the engine right but uh, the um uh, the the whole package is just uh, it's just better and it's it's a genuinely competitive motorcycle now yeah it's a motorcycle which 
you can take advantage of its strong points. Yeah, sure, it's maybe not quite as strong an acceleration as some of the other bikes. Yeah, it's not quite as fast. It's a little bit down on top speed. It's a little bit down on acceleration, but it turns like nothing else. Yeah, um, uh, it's off the throttle. It's it's a great bike that turns. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, and and especially this track, this track from the, that section all through the S's from from two through that's all off the throttle corners. Yeah, exactly. And what was interesting is that. Really, I guess, since in Ian O'Neill has come to Suzuki, he said that one of his issues is overtaking people. He doesn't have that confidence at the very end uh, of a back straight. Or as you're turning in, he still struggles a little bit with that, flicking it into the corner and turning. That was where Vinales was so strong when he was a Suzuki rider, uh, basically taking the bike from uh, upright into the corner at rapid speed. Um, Ian O'Neill's never quite perfected that and he finds overtaking quite difficult as a result and he said that in the first couple of races he's had the speed he's just not actually been able to pass him and if you look at a place like Qatar for example he was stuck behind um, I think it was Jack Miller um, that bike was the Miller's Ducati was obviously quite a bit faster during, uh, down the front straight and Ian O'Neill could just not didn't have the confidence yeah. to do uh, to make a lot, uh, late kind of lunge into the first corner um, he's also very aware of people's perception of him I think I think he's maybe more aware of it this year I heard him saying on Friday that um, if he takes someone down the whole paddock is just going to say yeah. oh Ian only doing a stupid Ian only esque thing and uh, he can basically kiss goodbye to his seat for 2019 so he's taking ex- extra special care with that and I think um, yeah there's a sort of self-analytical side that hasn't always been present in Ian only in the past certainly not last year no. um, and he's certainly thinking about things a little bit more um, it seems, and uh, yeah, very, very careful not to do anything rash in the first two races. Hasn't exactly done terribly. It's just that Alex Rince has been quite fast, or has been a lot faster than him. Yeah, but I mean, but Alex Rince has been willing to take the risk. I mean, yeah. you know, that's why he crashed out of two races. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, the, the, uh, it's as you said. I think it's a uh, it, it's a lose lose situation for Ian Oney because if he does take someone out, then everyone gets um, uh, gets annoyed at him for um, uh, for taking too much risk, and he loses his seat. But if he doesn't take that risk to try to pass people then he finishes you know sort of fifth sixth seventh instead of second or third uh, and uh, he also loses his seat so it's, it's a really fine balance i think ianoni is the perfect example of why uh, you have to be very careful what you wish for in terms of passing and in terms of uh, in terms of overtaking because uh, you can be aggressive i mean uh, there is a, there is at some point there is the line of, of, of aggressiveness and, and if you're losing uh, that aggression which Ian only has um, it's a loss to the, it's a loss to the, to the sport yeah it's a lot it pretty much it takes away one of his uh, great strengths um, yeah for sure and I think one of the differences here is that he actually managed to catch a two off Marquez in qualifying uh, he qualified in the front row and had a really good start and basically it was only Marquez that the, I think he led through the first corner Marquez passed him on the first lap but other than that it wasn't like he was getting held up behind guys that were slower than him or didn't have as good pace as him so we didn't see him getting held up and having to make any rash crazy uh, moves um, so the fact that he qualified in the front row I think was uh, you know really played to his uh, played to his favour as well um, but yeah great ride from him um, the best we've seen from Ianone since Philip Island last year and uh, well I don't know if it's going to be enough to save his ride but interesting nonetheless i was gonna say is it too little too late probably uh, yeah probably but it also depends on on who is available i mean it, it doesn't look like lorenzo is going to be with ducati next year um but the question is do do suzuki want uh i mean 
Suzuki would be happy to get rid of the baggage which uh, which Ianoni brings, but do they want to replace that baggage with the baggage which which Lorenzo wins? On the other hand, uh, there is, in my mind, there is no doubt that, uh, that Lorenzo could win a races and and contend for a championship on that bike because it's so much more like uh, like his uh, um, his natural riding style uh, than the Ducati. The Ducati is so completely alien to to, to Jorge Lorenzo that I think he's going to be leaving there. Uh, do you get Danny Pedrosa in, for example? Um, uh, you know, p- p- again, that bike would suit Pedrosa down down uh, down to the ground. It'd be a lot less physical, and he'd have a lot uh, a lot more chances. Do you get a younger rider, uh, Franco Morbidelli? This talk that Juan Mir wants to um, uh, well, he doesn't want to stay in Moto Two for uh, uh, for for too long. He wants to get out of there as quickly as possible because you see riders like Tom Lutie have been there forever, and it takes them a lot longer to actually adapt. Um, so yeah, there's uh, there, there's all of these. Th- th- there's a lot of options, and then of course there's the, the there's the satellite Suzuki situation. Um, perhaps Ian only could go back to a satellite Suzuki, but I don't think he would be particularly happy um, uh, happy about that. Yeah, uh, that's a recipe for disaster in my mind. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that would be uh, that would definitely be a, a, a it would be a step down in his mind and. Um, uh, We'd have an, an unmotivated Andrea Iannone. Right. That, and that's why I say it would be a disaster. You've taken yeah. away all that motivation, all the prestige, and yeah. I don't see him dealing well with that situation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's going to be interesting to see. Mark VDS obviously is in talks with uh, Suzuki. Very serious and talks. And Yamaha. And Yamaha as well. Yeah, it has to be said. Um, we're, I guess we'll expect an announcement. I think we can expect an announcement in Jerez in two weeks' time. Um, we were speaking to someone from Mark VDS yesterday from the, the MotoGP team, and they said that uh, their team boss, Michael Bartolemi, is uh, going back to Europe as we as we record this um, with uh, two, possibly even three, Honda. They haven't quite given up on that, but I'm pretty sure we can say they're not going to be with Honda next year. Yeah, it, it doesn't um, look but, like just, just because of the, you know, the packages, the, the packages that they have on offer from Honda is just not going to be the same as... Uh, as Yamaha versus uh, versus Suzuki. Yeah, but for Suzuki's next year, and um, well, Franco Morbidelli is contracted with uh, Mark VDS for a second year in 2019, so he'll definitely be with that team. So Suzuki could gain one of the grid's most exciting young talents uh, if they absorb Mark VDS and have a satellite program. Yeah, and there's also um, uh, Joan Mir has got a two-year contract with Mark VDS as well. So um, uh, Mir, um, uh, Mir is a possibility um, that Suzuki got, could get their hands on. Uh, but you know, maybe Yamaha will change their uh, change their policy and step up, provide better material, um, because you know you can see how it's benefiting Ducati with Petrucci and with Danilo Petrucci and and, and Honda with Cal Crutchlow. Um, uh, there's it's a really it it's not as simple as just picking between choosing between two uh, two bikes. There's a whole package behind it, their support levels and their sponsorship conditions and all the rest of it. Suzuki has a very strong tie-in with X-Star, so what does that mean for Mark VDS's ELF sponsorship? Um, uh, you know, what about all of the, you know, the, the, the energy drink money? Do you, is it easier to go with Yamaha because Yamaha already have a strong tie-in with Monster and um, uh, uh, and so do um, uh, so do the Mark VDS team? It's, it's not as simple as you might think uh, as you might think it is yeah and you basically you're choosing between two competitive packages you look at what the satellite Yamaha squad has done this year and last with Johan Zarco and you think okay there's a possibly uh, two bikes that could uh, challenge for the podium on occasion 
Or do we look at uh, Suzuki, who would be, I think we can say, willing to supply CM Bikes as the factory team? Um, so you would have... Well, not just willing to, I mean, uh, unable of, to, to do anything else because they don't have the engineering resources to uh, set up two sets of tooling to supply two different specs of machines. So basically, you you know, you've got, you've got sort of one... Uh, uh, you've got one frame making machine, uh, 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 machine, and uh, you set it up for one set of frames, and, and it just sort of punches them out. And um, that's not quite how frames are made, but uh, it's the die coke version, exactly. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yes, that's right, that's right. But it's, it, you know, it's basically that Suzuki doesn't have the resources to provide multiple um, multiple specs of machinery. So to an extent, you know, that's that that can actually work in your work to your advantage. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, boys, should we head into the winners and losers? I think so, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Neil, tell me who your winner was this weekend. Uh, so I'm going to go for uh, Moto3 world champion Joanne Muir. Um, Joanne has been quietly impressive in his first two Moto2 races. He's qualified really badly. I think he was outside the top 20 in Qatar. He was 17th in Argentina, yet his progress uh, at the start of both of those races was really impressive and he ended up scoring um well point scoring finishes on both occasions i think he was seventh in argentina 11th in qatar so not bad for his first two races in the motor two class but this weekend he qualified fifth had a real near moment at the first corner had to lift up and go off track and he was all the way back on the 24th and when i saw that incident i just thought okay well that's me out of the running that's a shame i thought he was going to be one of the guys on the podium yesterday and didn't think about him for a while and suddenly with I think about 10 laps gone in Moto2 race I was looking through the top 10 and I saw his name somewhere at the back of it and then rapidly advancing and uh, he ended up finishing fifth I think fourth. fourth sorry fourth yes fourth which was an absolutely incredible ride he was down to 24th on the first lap of that race and he managed to get all the way back and make so much of that progress early on in the race and even at the end he was still as fast as the the eventual race winner Peko Banyaya when he had used up so much tyre to cut through the pack it was a ride that was mark marquez-esque in its sort of ruthlessness and uh, only without the contact only without the contact exactly and mir um has been you know i think putting quite a lot of pressure on himself at the start of this year saying that he only wants to spend one year on moto 2 he wants to get right up to moto gp as soon as possible do a kind of vinales like um uh, short stay in the intermediate class and basically you're only going to do that unless you start winning races or you know showing incredible flashes of potential very very early in the season and well let's face it now he's done that and i think he's not going to be on the the, the radar of well he always was on the radar of uh, several MotoGP gp teams for 2019 now they're going to start to look at him and think right okay we do have a guy who possesses the talent of a Vinales, um who would be worth risking for 2019 maybe in one of our satellite teams um so mere yeah aside from what a fantastic ride, arguably the best ride in the Moto2 race. He was, uh, yeah, he confirmed the, the, the potential anti, yeah, he confirmed his own his own talk, really. Yeah, and the other thing is this track, uh, Austin, is a particular, uh, it has a particular history for, uh, you know, talented Moto2 riders. You know, uh, Moto2 rookies, I think Vinales won his first race here. Alex Rins in his first year wore, got, got a podium. So basically... Um, it's one of those little um, markers that if you, if as a rookie you come into Moto Two and you perform well, uh, you perform well in Austin. It's so far history has shown that um, you're likely to be quite good. 
Uh, you're likely to be quite good once you get to MotoGP, and certainly worth um, uh, worth when you're drawing up your list of you know who we who are we going to bring up to MotoGP. Um, uh, uh, Austin is one of the little check boxes to uh, to to tick off. And the best thing was I spoke to Mir after the race, and he wasn't even happy with his performance. He was really frustrated because he felt he could have finished well higher than fourth place. He could have been on the podium at worst had that not been for that. Yeah, I mean you'd have to fan- you'd have to have fancied him, <laughs> fancied him to win. Yeah, it. you're right. <laughs> Yeah. 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 Which in his third Moto2 race, um, the, the, the really talented riders, um, uh, they adapt immediately. They're quick uh, immediately as soon as they, uh, as soon as they change codes, you know, they, they change classes. Mir's got all of the ingredients. David, who is your winner of the weekend? There can only really be one winner here. Um, and that was the winner. Uh, Mark Marquez, um, he, silenced his critics in the most dominant fashion possible um uh, the booing he said he took the booing as motivation to show what for um uh, to to show the people what for so yeah i mean if you if you're a mark marcus fan stop cheering and start booing uh, that's really going to help um uh, if you're not a mark marcus fan then start cheering and stop booing because that'll help um what uh, also the way that he responded to the uh, to the penalties to the discussion about penalties uh, the, the way that he basically just th- this was a demonstration of what he is capable of and to be frank if i was any of his rivals i would be absolutely terrified um so yeah i mean what can you argue he's right back after after a dnf after zero points not a dnf after zero points last uh, last week in in argentina he's right back in the championship yeah yeah tough to argue with that it really is yeah and JB, that leads us on to yours. I mean, I'll take um, I'll take a page out of David's book, but I'll do you one better. the The winner is the man who's leading the championship. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yes. I mean, I uh, there is there is definitely a point that Andrea Dovizioso comes away uh, walks away from what could have been a disastrous uh, champ uh, or a disastrous weekend. Um, not quite smelling of roses, but at least uh, smelling of um, rose water. Yeah, I think I think coming into this weekend, Ducati and and Davi had to know that this was going to be uh, a weekend of mitigating losses and trying to to stem the bleeding as much as possible. It's not a particularly great track um, for them to perform at. But he made a really interesting point when he was talking to us after the race, where you know if you go back and look at where he was last year at this time. He's in a better position. And how close did he come to winning the 2017 championship? Yeah, I think he was 18 points, something like that, down from yeah. the leader last year. And now he's, he's he's got a one-point lead. Yeah, so a one-point lead isn't a lot. But when you look at, again, coming, we're, we're now switching across the Atlantic, going to a bunch of European tracks. And some tracks are going to favor the Ducati better and favor him better. He, he's on the right foot. Yeah. Now, I mean, there's a lot. there's obviously a lot more racing to go still, but... Uh, he seemed very upbeat. One of the, the the most interesting things to me was the fact that um, all of the Ducati started, all, all of the GP eighteens um, started running the aerodynamic fairing again. Uh, now that seems to be useful. They learned something um, with the setup of the bike. They changed the setup of the bike uh, previously during the testing with the with the aerodynamic fairing. What was happening? It was causing the front to wash out. Um, uh, in fast corners, and they changed the setup of the bike to give you know enough uh, benefit from the uh, 
uh, from the aerodynamic downforce, um, which is particularly, I mean, it's anti-wheelie, but it's also on corner entry because if you, you know, uh, when you're approaching a fast corner, it means that the front, there's more front contact before you even start braking. So there's less, there's a much smoother uh, weight transfer. Um, they found a way to actually get the benefit of that without washing it out, without, you know, taking a lot more risk in the, in the fast corner. So that was, um, uh, I think, and I think that's going to stand them in good stead until they can actually properly test uh, a new and revised aerodynamic package. Um, uh, I think Jorge will hope that it's going to be at uh, Jerez. I would be surprised if it's Jerez. I think we might see it at the Barcelona test, um, and that should fix sort of all of the uh, all of the issues. And there's been basically two weekends now where Davidsiozo has has scored solid solid points after looking completely lost on the Friday. He's turned those weekends around, and you have to say that it's something his teammate has not managed to do at all. Uh, David Sousa was, I think, outside the top 15 on Friday in Argentina. Yeah. And he managed to get sixth. He admitted he was very, very fortunate to get that sixth place. But here, he rode, he rode really, really well. Yeah, I mean, and you win a champion. You, you win the championship on the days that you have a bad day. Mm. You win championships on your bad days, not on your good days. Mm. On your good days, you um, you win races. Tell that on to your- Nicky Hayden. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If your bad day is six, that's how, to an extent, I mean, obviously, you know, Marquez won, what, uh, six races last year, but he didn't become champion because he won six races. He became champion because when he had bad days, he was fifth rather than uh, Dobby's bad days were 12th and 13th. Yeah, in the second half of last year, Marquez's bad days were second, basically. You know, he was... Uh, you know, his bad days were, were the days in Austria and, yeah. uh, and Mutegi where he went all the way to the last corner. That represented a bad result for him. Um, so yeah, Dobby's in a better, better position, Ducati. Well, he's in a better position than last year, but the only worry is that Marquez looks so much stronger than this time last year. And you can't imagine the Yamahas will be as off the pace uh, through the rest of this year as they were last year. So that's, what makes this that's something th- to consider. Yeah, but that's what makes this such a fantastic championship because, yeah, Suzuki are better. I mean, the, the thing is, I mean, yeah, you have a bad day and you could finish up seventh, but you could finish up seventh sort of 1.1 one seconds behind the winner with six people ahead of you so that's um uh yeah i mean that, that that's what's making it such a great it's such a great championship everything is so much tighter losers um let's see the loser i think the this is going to sound a bit harsh the losers were the fans who turned up for the race because the race was tedious brutal they were uh, i mean uh, motor three was Okay in parts, Moto Two was all right in bits. Uh, Moto Three or Moto GP was pretty much a snoozer. Um, uh, the the track, it's a it's a one of the best facilities on the uh, uh, on the calendar. It's one of the best events to come to for everything surrounding it. There is so much to do. Um, uh, Austin is awesome. The food is fantastic. The nightlife is great. Um, the, the other, I mean, you can, there, there is everything. There is everything you could want to do. If you want to, you know, uh, go hiking in nature, there are nature trails. Now, if you want to see wildlife, there's, uh, the, there's all sorts. There's arts, there's culture, there's, uh, there's everything. The only thing there isn't at this race is good racing. So, uh, to me, um, the, 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 the losers were the fans, but they were, compensated a little bit hmm. um, that's an interesting point Dave I'm going to be a little more conventional and go with uh, Scott Redding I think uh, it's the second weekend from three that he's really struggled in the race he hasn't just kind of struggled to get points but he's been way back from the very start of the race and um, yeah when factories are, are 
mulling over their plans for the following year um, as early as they are now, you really can't afford to have a, an opening to the season like he's had. Yeah, and the other thing is, I mean, the first person you have to compete against is your teammate, and he's just not not offering any competition at all to uh, Alicia. Alicia's comprehensively outperforming him. Yeah, and there's there's a few things where you just hear Scott say that he really doesn't understand why he's slow in certain conditions, like he was quite competitive on Friday, for example. Then on Saturday, um, there was a little skiff of rain in the morning time between uh, FP3 and qualifying. Suddenly the track conditions changed and then suddenly he's just nowhere. Um, and he's really at a loss to, to explain um, the mad differences in feeling between you know particular sections. Um, I think Alice has proven that uh, the 2018 Aprilia is a decent package. He feels that had he not qualified so poorly on Saturday, um, he could have been ahead of that little four-way fight where um, Rabat, Miller and Lorenzo were. Uh, he could have been ahead of that. Um, and for a track which that, that bike struggled so comprehensively last year, it's quite promising indeed. Um, and for Elise to have shown that kind of potential, for Reading to be so far off, I think is is tough, you know. And um, obviously yeah. a guy with a lot of potential. Uh, and it's not for want of hard work either. I mean, he is put, he, he does, uh, you know, he does appear to put the work in. He does the training. Um, he does all the work. It's just that for some reason or other, they can't find... Um, you know they can't find his mojo somewhere. His, his mojo is is somewhere, but it's not in the Aprilia garage. Yeah, so I think uh, I still think Scott can do some good things with that bike, um, but I think if we don't see an upturn in his performances in the next two or three races, yeah, I mean if he, yeah if he hasn't had a good, if he hasn't had a really good result by Mugello, I think it's going to be very difficult for him. Yeah, to keep that place. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, JB, what about you? Mr. Jorge Lorenzo is my oh. big loser for the weekend. Three from three. Yeah. yeah three shows running that Lorenzo's yeah. been one of our losers. It's it's brutal. It's but that's that's where it is. And and he's kind of in this little bit of a death spiral because of it. You know, you look at in my head I keep going back to the the pass that Miller made on him. And and he comes around and Jorge kind of gives a shake of the head. Now, one hundred percent believe that the shake of the head is because he's not happy with Jack's choice of lines and how that went down but to me there's a little bit of that poetic like like oh man what is what is going on here what am i doing what is this i've made a horrible mistake why am i fighting with tito robert why yeah. yeah and and to have a satellite to have a satellite bike come by on him to have a jack miller i don't want to play down uh, what kind of rider jack is but if we had stepped this back before Lorenzo was on the Ducati team, we wouldn't talk about Jack Miller and Jorge Lorenzo anywhere near each other in terms of skill. So to kind of see where he's fighting, to see what his his weight class is now in terms of his punching ability, it's it's significantly lower. And obviously the the frustration is palpable when you talk to him and you can see the the tension and you know he you know kind of wore it on his sleeve when we were in the rider debrief talking about um jack coming in and apologizing he didn't want to hear anything of it and you have to think a certain about amount of that isn't necessarily the incident itself it's the circumstances that surround the incident yeah yeah yes yeah, frustration I, yeah the whole situation yeah i mean it was uh, i mean neil you were saying i think maybe on the la on the last podcast that um uh it's, again it's not for want of hard work he's working harder than ever he's training harder than ever he's watching you know he's watching videotape see what he can learn, what he can do, but he just, this bike is just 
the polar opposite of his natural motorcycle, uh, his natural running style. He spent too long on a, he spent far too long on EMR to an extent exactly like Valentino Rossi did. You know, they both spent what seven, eight seasons on a Yamaha and then switched, and that did not work well. No, it didn't. And you have to say that Lorenzo struggled at the opening three races of last year, then went to Jerez, got a podium, and rode fantastically well during the weekend. If a result doesn't come in two weeks' time at Jerez, I think Lorenzo will just basically say, right, this is it. The, the, I'm not going to win a championship in this. Let's cut my losses and find somewhere else for 2018. Sorry, 2019. And Ducati might say the same thing. Um, there are obviously rumours about, uh, you know, frustration behind the scenes when the gap, well, even sometimes when you see the TV camera in the garage, it doesn't look like there's an easy relationship with some personnel in that garage and Jorge. Um, he is known to be quite explosive. Um, and yeah, it's just an, another really bad weekend. Yeah, uh, it, there's, I, there's no sign of progress. No, exactly. But I still, I mean, because he was fastest at the Sepang test and you just know that there are going to be tracks where he just completely blows everyone away. I mean, I, I, I would not be shocked if he won two, maybe three races this year. Um, but I would not be shocked that if he, despite winning, uh, you know, five or six races, uh, sorry, two or three races this year, he still ends up sixth, seventh in the championship. You know, I can't, I, I firmly believe that he could, that he can win races on the Ducati, but I cannot see him ever winning a championship on this bike because it just does not, or well, maybe if he spent four, better, four years on the bike, but I don't think Ducati have the patience to keep him on that bike for, for, uh, for four years. Well, to play devil's advocate a little bit, I mean, if Davi continues to have the results that he's having, maybe Ducati can afford to to put a little bit more time and and development into Lorenzo and say, hey, you know, you don't need to win the championship this year. We have a championship winning rider. You can keep progressing. Not to say that Lorenzo would be necessarily interested in that, but there isn't as much pressure on him now. Yeah, I think the person, the, the, the question there is that it's more the one of personnel management. Oh, how, absolutely. How do you manage the egos in, the, in, in that garage? Because, uh, uh, I mean, you do have to be a wee bit sociopathic to be a, uh, to be an elite athlete in any sport. I mean, you have to, yeah. you have to be willing to do just about anything to, uh, to, to win, to put in the work. So yeah, I think it's, um, I can see your point, and it's, a, it's actually a very good point. Why wouldn't you keep him on? But you would keep him on, but you certainly wouldn't be. The trouble is, you know, he's been paid twelve and a half million a year, yeah. um, and to tell him, well, yeah, we're willing to pay you what you're worth, and what we think you're worth is about a million and a half. Um, uh, that that's really not going to that's really not going to cut it because again, rider salary is not really about um, your economic value. It's about, um, uh, it's just a way of, it's a, just another way of keeping score. So uh, uh, Lorenzo wants to earn more than Dovi because he's Lorenzo. For the same reason that, um, uh, you know, Vinales and Rossi, Mark and Danny, um, everyone, Lorenzo wants to earn more than Rossi. Rossi wants to earn more than Mark. Um, everyone wants to earn just for bragging rights. Right. It's 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 another it's another level of competition. Right. I mean, um, uh, I was once told a story about playing uh, Monopoly with um, with Cal Crutchlow, and it was uh, um, it was fine for a while until he started losing. At which point he 
picked the board up, threw it in the air and marched and, and stomped off saying, uh, this is a stupid game I don't want to play anymore because he wasn't winning. That's exactly that's exactly the attitude that a motorcycle racer is supposed to have they're not supposed to be any fun in a social situation in a social situation it's not a um, uh, the olympic ideal is not alive and well in uh, in motorcycle racing <laughs> <laughs> it is very much the winning and not the taking part um well boys i think that just about wraps it up yeah it's been a pleasure to see you once again in Austin. And I should say it was also a pleasure to walk around the paddock and run into a lot of our fans. We have a lot of listeners in the USA, and um, I had more than a couple come up and, and say hi, and I, I bet you guys did as well. So Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I just feel sorry that I didn't have the time to actually uh, uh, you know, go out and spend more time with them and, and talk to them. I do really do appreciate people coming up and saying hi. It's just that... Um, uh, it's just that race weekend is the busiest time of year for me, so uh, uh, it's always uh, it's it's always really really difficult actually putting that together. And I, I really ought to put more effort into uh, into going out and meeting meeting fans. But I appreciate everyone who came up and um, uh, and said hi. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It was good to uh, to speak to some of the fans. Uh, some yeah, flag marshals, some guys that were in scrutineering uh, came up and said that they're listening to the show, um, which was really cool. And um, yeah, we'll certainly maybe arrange something next year when we get back, uh, some kind of meetup or something where we can uh, meet some of the guys that listen to the show regularly at some point over the race weekend. Yeah, that's my big regret. We didn't have a, a meetup this year as we usually do, but it was just quite too quite too hectic for it. It's been a good couple of weeks. Been a bit hectic. Been a bit crazy. It's going to be nice to have a few days off. I think before Hareth recharge the batteries. Um, Hareth. One of my favourite weekends of the year, David, definitely. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Not just the place, but uh, the whole atmosphere, the whole yeah. occasion uh, is, is definitely a, a high point in the, the calendar. And it promises to be a good one. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a proper, uh, it, it's a proper festival weekend. And uh, Jerez is um, uh, almost as good for food as Austin. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah, less hot sauce. They need more hot sauce. In well, boys, I look forward to watching it from the comfort of my own home, hopefully without the food poisoning this time. <laughs> and uh, Yes, well done for soldiering on. Uh, it's been not, quite, not quite Danny Pedrosa levels of, uh, levels no, of commitment, but close. Danny, Danny takes the cake, but I feel like I'm on the podium at least. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where's the, the reams of articles about your, uh, your kind of fighting spirit, JB? That's what I want to know. <laughs> Again, that's a different podcast. Uh, I should tell our listeners, please follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, if you do listen to this show on uh, iTunes or one of the other podcasting services, please. Apple, Apple Podcasts now. Oh, that's right. They've changed the name, haven't they? Yes. I should know this. Yes. It's yeah. like my job to know this. <laughs> I've failed you, failed you miserably. Uh, not for the first time. Yeah. And not for the last either. Uh, yes, if you listen to it on Apple Podcast or any of the other podcasting services, please do leave us a comment and review. Uh, I don't know who comes up with these search algorithms, but it's crazy times. Uh, rating the show certainly helps other people find it in, uh, in that space. Tell a friend, uh, listen to it at work, bring a coworker in, whatever you can do to help spread the word about the Paddock Pass podcast will be greatly appreciated. Yeah, stick your speakers up uh, outside your house and broadcast at loud volume. Well, I just read today that the South Koreans turned off their propaganda oh, yeah. speakers. So I'm really hoping maybe if we have some North Korean listeners, yeah. we can. I don't think they're going to turn theirs off, but maybe we could play the show over it and just kind of, you know, slowly convert them to something. Well, I think I think Neil's deep voice could really bring peace in the Korean console. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's the that's what's been missing. Yeah. What about commentary? Is just a is just a phase before. Uh, 
I ignite world peace. Yes, the world. yes. Yeah, I could see it. Paddock past podcast and peace, brother. Paddock past podcast. We always podcast like to transmit, right? Yeah, it could be a charity we start. <laughs> All right, boys, it's been a pleasure. I hope to see you soon. Take care of yourselves over in Europe. Cheers, JB. Thank you. Yeah, Paul Naylor's been away for uh, what four, three, four weeks. Yeah, well, I mean, Paul, Naylor, you didn't actually get to get to go to the Ify. Well, Neil has about four cities on his shirt right now. So <laughs> I can't. I'm happy that Neil's going to go home and do some laundry for a change. Yeah, the thought of clean underwear is just keeping me going at the moment. So, <laughs> but I'm not complaining.